Today's episode is sponsored by OnlineLabels.com. OnlineLabels.com gives business owners the flexibility to design and print their own labels. They have thousands of sizes, so finding a label for your job couldn't be easier. Whether it's a shipping label or a product label, the best part is they have no minimum orders and bulk pricing, so you can order as few as one sheet. Thank you so much, OnlineLabels.com. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 188 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about running an indie craft show with my guest, Trisha Brinkolini-Foley. Trisha believes in the power of making things by hand. She's been a maker and crafter her entire life. She started at Handmade Arcade in 2010 as a volunteer. And in 2014, she spearheaded the organization's transition from a volunteer-run LLC to an official 501c3 and became its executive director. Since then, she's grown its budget significantly and doubled the number of makers that the organization serves. During COVID, Trisha successfully guided Handmade Arcade through the process of creating a virtual craft fair, which we'll talk about. Supporting and participating in the arts continues to be a central theme in all aspects of Trisha's life. She's on the board of directors for the Brentwood Library, has volunteered for 10 years as a Girl Scout leader, and is continuously creating new collaborations with artists, small businesses, and other nonprofit groups to bolster Pittsburgh's maker community. Trisha Brinkolini-Foley, Welcome. Hi, Abby. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk with you. We have never had someone who runs an indie craft fair on this podcast, despite having 187 guests before you. So this is going to be a really special episode. And I'm so curious to learn all about the ins and outs of doing this because I am an avid craft fair attendee and consumer of craft fair goods and absolutely love going to them. So I just am so excited to hear more about the makings of and also about the pivot to making the show online, um, which you have done so gracefully. So this is going to be a great episode. Um, and I wondered if we could kind of walk back to the foundation of Handmade Arcade. I know um, it got started way back in 2004, which I think is such a pivotal moment in um, in the maker community, really. I feel like so many things were kind of um, bubbling up at that time, I guess. And so if you could talk about how um, the show was founded, who founded it, and kind of those early days. Uh, sure. So 
Handmade Arcade began um, as a group of women um, in uh, Al Hoff, who is now a retired member of the planning committee. Um, she in her kitchen in um, a part of Pittsburgh called Bloomfield, and there was a group of um, just DIY sort of like old. They would sort of describe themselves as like sort of like a more indie punk um, grassroots movement. Um, it started in 2004. There were about five or six folks at that meeting. Uh, Elizabeth Claire Prince, Jill Chisnell, um, Al, and uh, there's um, a woman named Gloria. Who, and they wanted to sort of, they saw the, this DIY craft movements um, happening. They had all always been makers and artists. Um, some of them are writers. And they wanted to start a small uh, like craft fair. And I, and I think they started off um, saying that Handmade Arcade was not your grandma's craft fair was one of their early slogans. Um, and they had a small event at a place in here in Pittsburgh where Handmade Arcade exists uh, called Construction Junction, which is a recycle uh, construction warehouse where like if you redo your kitchen and you want to recycle your cabinets or or you know like they take furniture there's all sorts of cool stuff happening there and they had a room um they had about 30 makers and about uh 800 to a thousand folks show up to shop and it just sort of just kept growing from there it went from 30 makers in 2004 um to uh I'm not exactly sure how many, but I started selling in 2006, and there were about 80 makers the year I sold. Um, and it went from a one-day event to a two-day event, and then it ha it's moved locations a few times. And then um, ultimately, in 2011, um, Handmade Arcade decided to see, try uh, using the Pittsburgh Convention Center. We had always sort of assumed that we couldn't afford it. But then when we did some research, we realized that if we added a few more makers and, um, you know, charged a little bit more for the table fee, we could pull off a convention center show. So we moved there in 2011, and that really sort of opened the door up for Handmade Arcade's growth to where it is now because we were able to have more space for shoppers. It was a more centrally located. It went from being this sort of like very grassroots, um, you know, like you had to like sort of it, – you didn't – it didn't get all of the attention – publicity-wise because it was in these like smaller sort of off-the-beaten-path sort of places to the convention center, which was centrally located and easier to get to. So like, um, for example, my mother is in her 70s and she would she came to a couple of them before we moved to the convention center. And even though she's, you know, not afraid to go down into the city, um, she was like, where am I? Where do I park? So that sort of changed the dynamic for us because it became um, more open and the space was cleaner and it was uh, just more accessible, like from bus to walking to biking. Um, so it sort of opened the door for him at Arcade's growth. Okay, great. And, you know, in those very early days, 2004, I mean, that was before Etsy. Yeah, that was. That's 
Right. Yeah. That was before people could really sell handmade goods online easily. I mean, you could do it, obviously, but you needed to know how to code or, you know, really be pretty savvy to be able to figure that out. Um, people were starting to blog, but um, that community was really, really small and connecting online through Flickr. I mean, those were the really the early days. And so, um, so, you know, if you go back in time, I, I'm just wondering kind of what sorts of things people were selling um, at Handmade Arcade back then and, and maybe when you first started? Sure. So um, so in the beginning, uh, it's kind of interesting. We have a couple of makers who are still with us. I was going to ask that question. Yeah. We have one in particular, um, Strawberry Luna, that is owned by Allison Glancy and her husband, Craig Cedar. They have been and met part of every single handmade arcade since 2004. Um, and then we have another, a couple of other makers who have been with us since very early days. And when I go back for historical purposes, I do go back to their, our Flickr account still exists. Oh. Um, and I'll see faces of some of the folks who I still know today who went from making things in their kitchen to now having like studios and stores and things like that, which is really exciting. Yeah, um, I bet. Yeah. So some of the things that were made, like um, there's a lot of stuff, screen printing, card making, um, paper goods, um, buttons, stickers, um, s- magnets. One of my favorite makers from early days would take um, albums and actually and cut, cut out the centers and make um, sticker make magnets out of like the old um, you know the center parts of like vinyl albums that yeah. were really cool um, I remember being really excited when I found the Grease one so I could send it to my childhood best friend since we like grew up listening to Grease and watching that um, like a lot of like book binding um, really really hands you know hand created stuff that lot of low-tech handmade um, you know things that you don't that sometimes now like you see like technology like intersecting with that um a little bit more so it was really that sort of like sewing and fabric and all sorts of um cool stuff i i actually early back then i had just had my first daughter so i remember looking being really interested in like the baby carriers and the wraps and the onesies and things like that um when I at those events. Yeah, absolutely. I think of like my paper crane and Heidi Kenny and like those early days too. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I wonder if, um, you feel like the standards for, I guess, branding and like labeling and I don't know. I, and I, I guess I would call it professionalism or something like that, um, have changed over time just because we're all, maybe because we're all so connected on the internet. And so able to see what one another is doing. I don't know if that's the cause of it or if there's some other cause, but um, it's sort of in comparison, the makers that you remember from back then and what the expectation is now. Yeah, I, there's a definite growth in that aspect. Um, uh, and I, I, I think back to a baby carrier that I bought. And when I think about the stitching on it and how like it wasn't straight and the edges were kind of not so neat and they weren't it wasn't as like crisply ironed as perhaps you would find now um and you know there's that sort of like like sort of like more rugged feel to things back then I think like not quite as professional and polished and now and now in particular like in what we look at we look at the sort of 
when we jury, so Handmade Arcade is a juried um, event. So you apply and then you're um, juried in. And you, we really look closely, like we zoom into the pictures and we look at the craftsmanship and we look at the, like for jewelry in particular, we look at the like, like their creativity. Are they using a lot of pre-fabricated findings that they're purchasing in bulk? Are they making, fashioning things on their own? Um, like if there's like metalwork involved. Um, so there is a definite difference, I think, of like growth and professionalism. And then one of the categories in particular that um, we have in our event is the bath and body category. And because we do things all online and we do our jurying online, I always tell new bath and body people that we can't tell what your product is going to do or how it's going to smell or how it's going to work. So it's really important that your packaging and your presentation and your photographs are, um, you know, uh, kind of elevated professionally because of that exact reason. So there's a definite elevation in, I think, the professionalism that's expected of packaging and um, photographs and things because there's so much information out there on how to do it and how to, like, you know, get a, get a better picture rather than just putting it on your floor and trying to get, a like, a picture. Like, you can light things a little easier. It's not quite as... Um, you know, you can, you know, Google it. Yeah. Really. And granted, yeah. let's, let's also say like in 2004, there was no iPhone. So, right, right, you know, right, we've all yeah. got, you know, digital tools at our fingertips now that just simply weren't available back then. I actually think the first couple of handmade arcades, they might have asked people to mail them pictures, at least for the first one. I'm not sure about that, but I, I, remember I know that I didn't have a digital camera in 2004. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so they may have because I, I know when I applied the first time it was all digital. I don't remember mailing anything in, but that also doesn't mean I didn't because that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So what did you, um, what were you making when you started selling? So I had worked um, for a public radio station here in Pittsburgh called WYP and I left that job and I um, I had a young, my first, I have two daughters and I had just had my first daughter and I was um, about to have my second and I was, my very first handmade arcade, I was pregnant with my second daughter and I had joined a play group of um, like kind of, we were all sort of like hippie, like old, you know, like perhaps some of us would identify as like being punk. I was like more punk when I was younger than I am now. Um, so we were sort of like this like fringe mom group where we were very much into like natural, natural, you know, like breastfeeding and uh, fabric, ba and you know, like fabric diapers. And I actually never used fabric diapers because I couldn't manage it, but a lot of them did. And we were all very creative and we all we we found out about Handmade Arcade and we joined together and created this little collective of moms who all knew how to sew and who all liked making things. And when it was we were called Spinach Baby, and we made aprons like little tiny aprons for kids, toddler to like 10, 12 year old, uh, diaper changing pads that you could fold up and carry and put things in, and like they were like circular, so they would covered changing pad tables. Um, diaper bags, little baby booties. Um, so it was really kid focused. And, and we used bright colors. And there are about four or five of us that worked on it together. And then it slowly um, changed like everyone, you know, people's, um, they, you know, it's sort of like, like some of the folks dropped out, some of them found other things to do. Um, and then eventually, um, in 2010, um, 
it was just me. Like there was no one left in my little collaborative and Handmade Arcade had put out a call for volunteers. And because when I worked for the public radio station, I had done a lot of, I, I, prior to doing this, I was a graphic designer. Um, so I was a web, web designer and a print designer and I had, um, wanted to get back into freelancing. Um, so I thought, well, what better way to get back into the Pittsburgh arts community than to volunteer for this amazing organization? So I answered the call. Um, I had experience because with at a public radio station, if anyone ever has worked for one, you do lots of things. And I, the marketing director and I worked closely together, so I helped her plan events and set things up for events. So I was already used to carrying tents and setting up tables. Um, so... We, I got involved with um, Handmade Arcade then and uh, just sort of went, right. went there. Yeah, so, so cool. So, okay. And at that time, the organization was all volunteer run. It was an LLC, but it was volunteer run. Um, and, you know, I think probably a lot of um, craft fairs are run by volunteers. That strikes me as, as probably um, a, a pretty common phenomenon. Um, and so um, you helped over the course of the next couple of years to um, to make um, Handmade Arcade into a, a nonprofit, a 501c3, and, and then come on as their first paid staff member, it sounds like, as their executive director. Um, and so what was that process like? I mean, I think for some people, they hear that and they say, oh, that sounds great. But then they're like, oh, that also sounds really overwhelming, like a lot of paperwork, that a lot of, you know, maybe I need an attorney. Is this can be too much work for me to do and, um, you know, to go through that process. So was it hard? Was it was it overwhelming? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was extremely <laughs> overwhelming. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> It was a it was an over one hundred page PDF by the time we turned it in to the um, IRS. So uh, one of the benefits of Handmade Arcade is that is it where it is located, which is the city of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh has. From my perspective, I mean, I grew up here. I lived other places here and there, but for the most part, I spent all forty six of my years here. Has um, an incredibly supportive and vibrant arts um, community. And so there is an organization called the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council, and they provided us with the help we needed. Um, we joined as a, as a member. So we were an LLC for many years, but it was all volunteer run. And no one, there was no expectation of pay. There was no expectation of money. If there was any money left at the end of the event, we would save enough to start up next year's event. And then sometimes like pay ourselves a hundred or two dollars for the time um, spent. And so when we made the transition, what had happened was we hit, hit our 10th year anniversary and the event had grown significantly because we had moved to the convention center and we had, were getting more press and more people coming and it was becoming more and more popular. It was becoming sort of like a holiday tradition for many people. They would come from Ohio, from West Virginia, from Erie, PA, which is a few hours away, from Central PA, and they would make a, a day or a weekend out of it. They would come to Handmade Arcade. They would do the holiday events in the city of Pittsburgh which there are quite a few of. Um, so it, it started to become this sort of like, you know, uh, you know, Pittsburgh has this Three Rivers Arts Festival, which happens every summer, which has been around for a very long time. And it, it was starting to have that sort of feel that it was like a, a, a big major holiday attraction. So we finished up our 10th year 
and we were tired, all of us. And we were like, this, something's got to give, like, uh, somebody's got to work full time on this project. And nobody can do that without being, you know, compensated in some way. Um, for the record, event show planners do not make a lot of money. <laughs> Handmade Arcade does not um, take any money from its vendors other than the vendor fee. Some people think that because so many folks attend the event that we are like making money hand over fist. But part of our mission is that all of our events are free. So the accessibility to the public is incredibly important to us. So we will, we, it has always been our goal to, you know, we'll ask people to donate a dollar or two when they come in, but it's not there's no like admission fee to attend. Um, so we um, we met with the Greater Pittsburgh Arts Council and we talked to them about what we had been doing and how we had been running, and asked them what their opinion was. And they thought they said, "Yeah, you you guys really do qualify for nonprofit status based on what you've been working on." So we they through their services um, we were able to meet with some business consultants. We had a few retreats. Um, we were able to meet with some nonprofit lawyers for the arts, and we started on the uh, nonprofit form. And because we had existed, there's a short form and a long form. We could not do the short form. We had to do the long form. We had to prove, you know, there was a lot of documentation. There was a lot of um, financial stuff, which is not one of my strong suits. So we had to really pull together a lot of like spreadsheets and a lot of information, a bunch of, um, a lot of tax forms. So it took from, we started the process in 2015. We finally filed in early 2017. And then we received our 501c3 um, letter in September, September 17th of 2017. I have that date. Um, <laughs> so I have the letter um, in a binder, a lovely binder with our bylaws and all of that stuff. So you have to, we had to file with the state of Pennsylvania first and get approval there. And then we could move on to the, um, to the federal gut for the, to the IRS. And, and that was really a, a big change for us. Um, in many ways, uh, we were able to fundraise differently and like do sponsorships differently. Um, it's taken a while for the uh, really generous foundation community in Pittsburgh to recognize that we did make this switch. And we finally received our first grant for operational funding in 2019. And then in 2020, with the onset of the pandemic, we received a large sum of money from the Richard King Mellon Foundation to help makers pivot from in-person marketplaces to online and develop a virtual marketplace, which I am sure we'll talk about. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, OnlineLabels.com. OnlineLabels.com gives business owners the flexibility to design and print their own labels. They have thousands of sizes, so finding the label for your job couldn't be easier, whether it's a shipping label or a product label. OnlineLabels.com sells blank and custom printed labels for professional or personal use. Every purchase includes free access to Maestro Label Designer, the easiest way to design and print labels. You can design your own labels from scratch, or you can choose from hundreds of pre-designed templates. Small business owners choose OnlineLabels.com for product labels, 
for shipping labels and for craft supplies and more. They have no minimum orders, so you can order just the amount that you need. I know I have a Dymo label printer and I'm always running out of labels for that. Onlinelabels.com stocks refill for your Dymo label printer. So that's a great place to go to stock up. Thank you so much, onlinelabels.com. And now back to my conversation with Tricia. So now as a nonprofit, part of your job is grant writing. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. And was I that a new skill for was that a new skill for you? I worked for a nonprofit for several yeah. years and I wasn't the executive director, but there were just three of us on staff. And so I did work closely with the executive director on grant writing. And so I'm familiar with that process. But it's a pretty it's it's a skill to learn how to do that. Yes, I'm learning um, every day more and more about it. I've written prior to becoming a nonprofit, we had always applied for a small um, grant to fund some of the hands-on activities that we do at our events so we could pay the artists that were like putting those activities on. Um, so I had done that, but it was kind of just a repeat of what had already been written. Um, I've always been fortunate that even though Handmade Arcade became a nonprofit and I became its sole employee, I've always been supported by a very... Um, amazing group of people who are still volunteering as part of the planning committee and as part of now our board of directors. And several of them are writers and nonprofit professionals. So I've had a lot of help. I've had a lot of training from them. Um, My board president right now is a great, is an amazing grant writer. She, uh, so I will write the first draft of the grant and then she will, I just say, I don't have any feelings, change it as you need to change it. Make it <laughs> right. And I feel like I've learned a lot over the course of the last few years about how to effectively write a grant, how to effectively develop a budget. Um, I had no idea how to do any of that. I mean, I tracked Handmade Arcade's finances on a color-coded spreadsheet. Um, and just recently in the last um, couple of months, I've been trained by uh an accounting firm who specializes with non- small nonprofits on how to actually like, you know, track our money and track funding properly and all that stuff you have to know that you don't know until you <laughs> have to know it, I suppose. Right. So. And one of the things I think is also important for people to realize too, is that now you're a paid professional and that I, I do think that sometimes people um, don't realize that, you know, a nonprofit organization does have paid professionals on staff. And it's really important that that person, I know you said you don't make a ton of money, but receive a competitive salary of some kind, because um, you want to attract the right people in that job who really are passionate and skilled at doing that job. And in order to do that, you need to pay them a competitive salary. Um, and that, you know, that money does come out of, of what the organization is, is earning or is, you know, um, of, of donations. And that is overhead. And I put overhead in quotes. And sometimes people feel like, Oh, I don't want to give to a charity that has overhead, but overhead is actually important. I mean, obviously, you don't want ballooning overhead that's out of proportion. But um, but without that, you don't have things like good financial controls, for example, um, as you just spoke about, um, and things like that, that are really, um, you, you know, you do need to have overhead. Otherwise, um, think about it, you know, you, you would not have a, a well functioning um, organization. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, one of the parts of the of the handmade arcade community has been that we've been we do other things other than the events and that is where like sort of the idea of like fundraising would come in for us like we do work with makers um year round to help them build their businesses or you know uh hold workshops on how to you know present themselves or market themselves or do their merchandising correctly um so we can um you know, like we do like a lot of year round seminars and workshops. So we have a youth maker program that goes on year round. So then we have youth makers at the event selling their wares with our support. Um, so there, you know, there's more, so much more to Handmade Arcade and many of these organizations than just the big event that people think of, of it being. Um, and yeah, the overhead does exist. And right now I'm Handmade Arcade's only full-time employee. Um, we had, um, We've had other like part-time folks here and there. Um, I have a, I have a, um, Tara McElfresh is our hands-on handmade coordinator. She is a, like a contracted employee and, um, she's actually one of the moms that I was in that play group with that I spoke oh, about funny. earlier. Um, she never really made anything, but she was involved, um, just in this being very supportive. And she just happens like, She's one of those people who like knows everyone and her kids are really involved in a bunch of different things. And so when we started like when we needed someone to, um, to take over the the one of the artists who ran our hands-on activity. So at Handmade Arcade, we have this huge area called Hands-On Handmade Activity Area where we teach people how to sew, how to knit. We screen print. We do jewelry making, like anything you can possibly think of that can be like a make and take activity but also like teach someone something we have tried it there um so we had a great artist um working on that when it started and um when she left um we i asked tara to take it over because she had so many great connections and so she gets you know like she there's like money for things like like that um as well but yeah, it's it's um it's a juggling act. I mean, we're still a very small budget-wise, like very very small nonprofit. Um, and the goal is really to lift up and boost um, the maker community. That's our our goal. Pittsburgh has uh, a very robust maker community. I think um, because it has such a strong history in the arts, and there is such a supportive art community, um, we are you know fortunate. There, there's a large like maker community here in Pittsburgh. There's a bunch of different organizations that support them. There are other nonprofits that support them. We've got quite a few maker spaces that are really active. Um, so it's kind of like a, it's almost like a, it's a small city too. So it, it's like everything you, you can do a lot of stuff as long as you're, if you're, if you connect, if you're connected with the right people, because there's just such a great sense of community and collaboration here. Yeah, sounds like it. Okay, yeah. so um, so you took over. We you shifted this to an, uh, a nonprofit organization, um, and you took over as executive director, as, as we said. And so so now um, you you spoke earlier about the jurying process. Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about that, is there a committee that is you know so that you have people who are sort of experts in looking, for example, at jewelry in the jewelry category or a Bath and Body who can kind of of, you know, determine, okay, well, the, you know, this person's in, this person's out, or how does that process work? And any tips for um, artists who might be applying, whether it's to Handmade Arcade or just to other craft fairs um, for, you know, who, who are hoping to be able to have the most successful um, application? 
Yeah, I have lots of um, advice on this front. So first and foremost, Handmaid Arcade is run uh, by myself, but I am supported by a planning committee. And over the years, that has it has um, had a lot of different folks on it. Um, everyone on the planning committee is dedicated to the event, familiar with the event, and a maker themselves in some way. Um, and so the planning committee, um, we are, are the juror. We they're the core jury, but we also for every one of our big events, um, which is our hot winter event, um, we bring in we we ask for guest jurors from the community. So um, we will ask folks who might be uh, might own a business or might own a makerspace or might uh, just be a well known artist or have some sort of connection to the maker community. That's like. Um, that's, you know, like impactful and they understand what we're looking for. So we'll have that. So we have our, our, you know, year jury every year to the same jurors. And then we'll have uh, these new guest jurors at different folks every year. And everyone is assigned different categories depending on their expertise and their comfort level. Um, And we go through each application. Um, So the handmade arcade asks and many, many, um, Craft fairs, I believe, ask for similar things. They ask for, um, a, you know, like a process. How, how do you make your things, like your your price ranges, um, photographs, and sort of like a bio of yourself and your, you know, your procedures and your processes of make, how you make your things. Um, so I, the most important part of your application are your pictures, are your photographs. Yeah. So if you are going to invest anything in your business like if you have a couple if you have some money and you want to invest I highly recommend investing in photos in great photos yeah photographs are really important but one of the things that's also really important is you really need to read the terms and conditions or the FAQs or whatever it is that that particular craft fair has put out for their makers because for example handmade arcade is okay with you submitting like a collage of photos as one of your six photos, but other fairs aren't. So you like really, I I think that's so, there's so much time and energy put into the communicating what it is that that craft fair is looking for. And then a lot of times people just sort of apply and don't, don't necessarily read that or they'll send the info box a question that's like definitely answered in the FAQ. So my biggest two biggest pieces of advice are carefully read what who who you're applying for what their parameters are and what they're looking for make sure you're a fit um if if you know it's an indie craft fair and you are very much a fine arts crafter you know you might it might not be your best uh way to spend because that you know most app most events have application fees ours are on the lower side but some aren't and your photographs are incredibly important because before um, we do anything, we look at the pictures. It's the first thing we do. I'll look at pictures, then I'll go back and read about the artist, and then if I'm if I want to know more, I'll go and click through their social media. Or, for example, if I'm looking at two artists who are very similar, like a jewelry maker, for example, like two silversmiths who make similar jewelry, I will go and look. I will, you know, leave the application site and go and like compare and contrast their social media and take a good look at like more pictures. So um, I think your online presence is also important at this point because it has gotten so competitive to get into handmade arcades in particular. Um, That being said, we do reserve a certain amount of tables at every event for new makers. So if you're not quite there and you're not quite ready, but you've got a great product, but you're online presence isn't as robust as someone who's been doing this for years and years, we still have space for you. It's not, you don't have to be 
like hyper professional to get into handmade arcade because we understand that like everyone's in a different um you know, time frame within their business. Right, right. Okay. All right. So that's really, um, really good to hear and to understand. And um, I definitely think um, reading the information and making sure you are a good fit are two really, really good pieces of advice. Um, and that actually applies across the board for other things as well. Like if you're um, putting together a book proposal or trying to submit your um, your magazine article pitch idea for a magazine or really so many things. Um, so often I find people... Um, maybe do don't don't quite read as much as they could. I mean, it's really, that's just something that um, really, really applies. And and you talked a little bit about the youth makers. And I think that is just a fantastic opportunity um, as a parent of a very creative 16 year old, um, who absolutely loves to make things and has is working right now on a line of earrings made from the tabs that are used to close up um, bags of like loaves of bread. Um, and they are so cool. So, and she's like spray painted them gold and made these super cool hanging earrings where they're all chained together. Um, I love them. So anyway, I love that. I know they're so cool. I know (laughs) they're super cool. So anyway, um, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about the youth maker program because maybe some craft fair organizers out there don't have that aspect and could, um, could think about adding it. Um, sure. So, one of the things that is happening here in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure across the uh, across the country, are uh, maker spaces in schools. So there, uh, this idea of like being a maker or being a young entrepreneur has, I think, really grown significantly in sort of like the public um, in the public realm right now. Um, there's a group called um, My Childhood uh, Speech is going to come into play right now. There's a group called Real world scholars based out of san francisco and they are across the uh, nation we, they have a group here in pittsburgh and they have um a, a, a sub like a sub part of their um their goal is to work with youth entrepreneurs and create this idea and they have a sort of like a, a part of their their they're also a nonprofit, but a part of their nonprofit is a group called EdCore, and they develop entrepreneurial classrooms in uh, schools with teachers. So that's like a really great um, place to go and look if you want to read more about like some sort of like, you know, entrepreneurial classroom. What Handmade Arcade started doing um, a couple of years ago uh, that we had a tech shop here in Pittsburgh, which has since um, gone out of business. Um, but we, they had a bunch of like um, youth maker summer camps. And there was a summer camp called Startable Pittsburgh that's worked with students to create a brand, create a create projects, create a business, use their creativity. Um, they had wood makers, metal makers, people who used 3D imaging. Um, they taught, uh, they had uh, people who were like fashion designers and um, who were using sewing machines. And they were put, they were putting this summer camp together that was, um, a six to eight week long kind of intensive summer camp where they were developing their businesses. So when we found out about that, we thought we need to get those makers at our event. Um, so we started to work with Startable Pittsburgh to sort of cultivate some of the makers who were interested in um, continuing their making after the summer camp ended to sell at our event. Um, and so we started off with two and then we expanded it. Um, and now we have 
we have around 10 youth makers in our youth maker programming. We, we basically put out a call. You don't have to be a part of the startable, um, Pittsburgh summer camp. We will put out a call. Um, and actually that's, business that summer camp model has changed drastically too over the course of the last two years because of the the way the world has everything has changed um so they will put out a call for youth makers we'll have applicants um we've had embroidery artists we've had screen printers um and interestingly enough um handmade arcades youth maker programming has been probably our most diverse um group of makers in terms of um like ethnicity and um, because these young folks are just so creative and we'll get in, we'll get them into our program. They get, they, they, they get, they apply the same way as makers do. So they sort of have to go through the process of the application and understanding that process. Um, And we will work with them within workshops um, where we'll talk to them about how to sell, how to sell yourself, how to, how to handle a long um, day at a, you know, like how much inventory to bring. Um, we'll give them a stipend for materials. Um, we usually give them a a day of stipend for food. And I, I always, as a mother, um, make sure they have like a cooler of water and snacks and all sorts of like extra things that I think about if my high, my 17 year old were at the convention center from, you know, 7am to 7pm. I like think, oh, let's make sure they're all like well stocked with granola bars and apples. <laughs> so, and they, they also, have. I bet they need like I know with my daughter, I had to set her up like a PayPal account connected yes. to her bank account. Yes. That was a process that we had to go through. So that's actually something that we were working on last year. Um, so the the youth maker programming is not perfect in in the, in the handmade arcade universe. Um, it is a, it's a work in progress. We just you know we're we're trying to figure out the kinks. And in 2019, it became like glaringly obvious that some of the makers had more support than others um, at home. So some of the makers would have a really easy time getting bank accounts set up and having money for like a cash box at the event, and others didn't. And one of the main goals that I started off in 2020, we had a few um, youth maker programming meetings before um, the shutdown to just talk about how do we how do we solve that problem and how yeah. do we make it equitable across the board for all of these kids? And we didn't really get a chance to figure that out. Um, but That's we're a still great there. question. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it might be worth talking with um, with Sarah Trail from the Social Justice Sewing Academy. Yeah. I know she's, um, she's you know, running her, her incubator, business incubator, um, and has been for the last six months. And um, that's something that we've been collaborating with her about. But as far as, um, as far as getting over that particular hurdle with banking, because um, I, I do wonder how she's, because I think those businesses are maybe primarily e-commerce. Um, and that is the same thing. I mean, that to, to be able to set up an e-commerce account, you do need to, you know, to sell on Depop or wherever you want to be able to sell. Um, you, you need to be able to figure out PayPal. Yeah. Um, and our youth makers are all, they're ages 13 to 18. And right. if you're under 18, you again can't, can't set it up. You can't so set it up. And so you need yeah. that, you need that, um, that support from somebody right who's an adult. Right. So yeah, that, right. that is a challenge. It is. It is. It's, it's the biggest challenge right now we're having with youth maker programming. And one of the solutions we came up with was we sell everything at a central location. Like um, attendees can go to the youth maker table, get their stuff. Like they'll write up an invoice and then there'll be like a handmade arcade sort of checkout space for them. I see. Um, and then we, then we like pay them after the Afterwards, event. Afterwards, right, they sold. right. And that, but that we, again, work. like that, we had, we, that was our, plan in early 2020 we didn't get to implement it so right I'm not of course sure. 
So, okay. Well, we'll yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Um, that, yeah. that's, that's great. Um, yeah. I'm just sort of interesting to think out loud about, about those challenges. And so let's talk a little bit about COVID. So, um, I think you and I were originally in touch with this because I had come across and I was really closely following all the different pivots, um, whether it was trade shows, craft fairs, just all the different um, shows that were out there because my heart was breaking for all of these um, companies and nonprofits that were um, having to cancel one after another and um, and then having to regroup really, really fast and think on their feet and figure this out. And then um, really wanting to celebrate those that came up with new models that were very successful. And so when I came across Handmade Arcade, I was just so impressed because the way that you um, structured your online virtual show to me seemed unusually good. It just really struck me as being easy to navigate and as taking you directly from the Handmade Arcade site to the maker's website really easily and back. Um, so you could shop directly and buy everything you wanted, but the discovery was right there and it all opened in a new window exactly as it should. Like there's just so many subtleties. Um, and, you know, I don't, begrudge anyone for getting it wrong because it was so hard to do, but you all just seem to really get it right. So I just wanted um, you, if you could talk a little bit about your thought process, what happened when COVID hit, and then how you went about figuring this out. Sure. And thank you for your kind words. They um, mean a lot to me, specifically because I have been an Abby Glassenberg fan for a long time. And when, you, when you posted that, I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so here, first, first of all, um, I have a master's degree in multimedia technology from Duquesne University. So I, for many years before I got involved with Handmade Arcade, I was a web developer and um, I have a lot of information design background. Um, so that helped tremendously. So final, my master's degree that I feel like I will never pay off really worked hard in 2020 for me. Um, so when the world shut down, Handmade Arcade immediately pivoted into what we called the 412 Maker, maker Takeover. And we gave our Instagram account every day to a different maker to support themselves. Um, and because Pitts, Pittsburgh has such a tremendously generous foundation community, the Richard King Mellon Foundation almost immediately dedicated a lot of money to helping businesses, particularly arts businesses and food resource businesses, to uh, weather the storm so that they could provide the right sort of um, support for their for their community. And um, it was a COVID specific grant that they had put out that my uh, that I immediately recognized with my board president who um, at the time was working for a local theater company that had also shut down. Um, so that we, we should apply to this because there's no way this is going to be over by Christmas. There's no way we're going to be able to have an event um, by the end of the year. Like it was immediately like, you know, we immediately felt that. And um, so we applied for this COVID-19 uh, specific grant, but because we hadn't lost any money yet and we hadn't actually had to cancel an event yet, we didn't qualify. So, the, but the Richard King Mellon Foundation saw our um, 
plan and was like, this is going to be great. Uh, we want you to apply for our regular grant making stream, which was super stressful because we had to start building everything that we were working on and investing money before we knew we got funded. Because we had to, as my board said, we had to start to build the airplane before we could fly because it took time to build it. So we didn't know that we were actually funded until September, but we started working on everything in July. So um, I think that's so smart, though, to work on it in July because it takes a really long time. And it just strikes me like right now, as we are recording this, the Modern Quilt Guild is running their online event. And they made that call, I want to say in July as well, maybe even earlier. I'm sorry if I'm getting that that date wrong, but they started planning it way back then. And I think the success that we're seeing today is because of that length of time. Yeah. I agree. So we started to get um, proposals from different web development companies and designers and um, really started thinking through every single step. How can we take all of the parts of Handmade Arcade that are so important to people um, and put them online and, you know, the interacting with the makers. So that was so I was like, when you go up to the booth, when you come to the Handmade Arcade virtual marketplace and you click on um, Hit Modern Soaps Bath and Body Works, you know, um, page, I want you to immediately feel like you're interacting with that maker. So that was like the sort of thought process between the individual maker pages. So for those, you know, if for those of you who want to go and look at what this is going to look like, you'll be able to look at it again. We are launching a spring virtual marketplace on April 30th. Um, But for now, it's just we shut the market down because we don't want to constantly have it open. You want that sense of excitement. So um, uh, you would go to the page and it would open up with like a large a large image. And I, I, I encouraged all the makers to make that first image a video that sort of was like a welcome to my page. You would then be able to scroll through six large images that I told them to be to give the users a sense of who they are. So do the video, introduce yourself, explain your business. You have, you know, like less than three minutes. That's what like the web development team and I came up with as a time frame. And then these six large images that you could uh, scroll through as like a slideshow. And I had said to, you know, make that as personal as you can while still incorporating your business. We found that the folks who did shots of them in their studio making did really well. The, the, the makers who really went outside their business and put pictures of them like out in nature, but not with their business. It didn't as, it wasn't as appealing. We found that out later. So like that'll, that'll be like a change for the next iteration. Um, underneath that was a narrative that where they could write about themselves. And then underneath that were 10 small product pictures where we said, you know, you, you could be anything they wanted. It would link directly to their page. So I sort of recommended that if you sell a bunch of different kinds of products, like make those sort of like the, like whatever your categories on your website are like, you know, like you could have some of your best sellers. Like if you sell like a, a t-shirt, that's like your best, best seller, put that on there. You sell that the most, but then also like if you sell, um, tea towels, screen printed tea towels, and that's one of your big categories, like sort of like you had to really think strategically about your 10 images that would link to your page to get the most bang out of your, your link, um, availability. There was a, a place for them to put their logo links to their website, links to their, um, social media. And, um, and then, and then you could just, 
you could search by category. There were tags, so every maker could tag their images. So you could search scarves, and every maker that had tagged an image with the scarf, all of those pictures would load. Um, and it was a really, really, really well thought out. Uh, we were very fortunate. We had a, we hired a, a web development team um, called ImageBox here in Pittsburgh, who were incredibly talented, incredibly creative. I would tell them what I wanted to do, um, and they they figured out how to do it. Um, some of the functionality that we didn't did, didn't make it in simply because of time, which will be in the spring event um, that I'm really excited about. For the next iteration of the virtual marketplace, you'll be able to save a favorite. So say, for example, you want to shop and you're like, I want to just like mark all of the makers that I like and then go back and decide what I want to buy. You'll be able to like create an account on the website and then be able to save the favorites and you'll be able to go back and look at that and then they'll, they'll all load and then you can go and make your purchases. Um, it was nice because it gave people a lot of time to browse. And I think that that personal connection that you get at an event, um, when it's really busy, you don't always get to have that, but you don't always have the chance to browse or go into a booth that you want to because it's so crowded and you're, you're like, oh, I'll go back later and then you end up never doing that. The nice thing about this virtual marketplace is that you had nothing, you know, we were all sitting at home, before, you know, right around the holidays. The Everyone was saying, don't go anywhere, stay home, don't, you know, don't travel. And we opened on Small Business Saturday and we stayed open for nine days. And that gave people plenty of time to browse, plenty of time to make their purchases carefully. Um, makers did really well. We had over 23,000 people come to the website um, over the course of those nine days. And... One of the things that we did to try to continue with that sort of interactive element of the in-person event was that we put together virtual classes. We had maker meet and greets. Um, we had four themed um, meetings where I would sit and sort of like, sort of like game show host style interview, like uh, different types of makers, um, and and that you know folks could tune in to watch we had makers video do studio tours that we would release on um our social media platforms we had instagram lives happening so like every day there were interactive events happening with the event along with this really well thought out well programmed um website which um went i mean i can't speak more glowingly um about the the web team that we hired to do this for us. They just did an amazing job. And you recorded a video. I did. Explaining the shift to virtual. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I, you know, I, I wanted, I, I I really, that idea came from the three rivers arts festival in June because they, they were one of the first big events here in Pittsburgh that shut down. That's a two week long festival that happens here. Um, It's music, it's art, it's food. Um, and the director of the Three Rivers Arts Festival had put up a, a short sort of like, you know, we're sad, this is happening, um, this is what we're trying to do to make it so it still feels like there's something happening online. And it really moved me. And so when we got to our um, event and everything was falling into place, um, I worked with a writer who helped me come up with like sort of a script. I told her what I wanted to say and she um, put together the language for it um, for me and I hired um, a videographer and uh, he recorded it and edited it for me and um, like I'm a little bit stubborn and didn't want certain things to happen with it and then when he was like no you need to have music you need to have this you need to have different angles I, I was like 
and then when he put it together, I was like, oh, wow, you're right. You did a really amazing job. Um, and it just explained like, you know, this is what's happening. We still have to support the maker economy. They're taking hit after hit. They, the, the income that is being lost um, by this creative, you know, this creative community is like, unimaginable. And so many of the small businesses that, you know, full-time makers were not getting the PPP loans and were not getting um, the support that like larger businesses were getting and were having such a hard time getting through that we really wanted to try to like create a, you know, a sort of revenue source. Handmade Arcade in 2019, um, based on our surveys, brought in around $500,000 into the creative economy in here in Pittsburgh. So we were trying to like, you know, like not let the year go by and a lot of these makers miss that out on that opportunity. Um, many makers tell us that Handmade Arcade is our is their year-end event that literally pushes them and helps them make the money that they need to like, you know, like sort of get through the slow January, February months where there's not a lot going on um, when they're like resting and recouping because it's exhausting, you know, as you know, okay, you can imagine by the end of the year, you're exhausted as a maker from doing all the shows. Um, so yeah, the video is just sort of a, explanation of what we were doing why we were doing it why it was so important to shop local and shop small and support these businesses i thought it was so smart it was such a good leadership moment and i just thought it was really really well done and well worth hiring a professional writer for i didn't know that but it was i mean clearly it was professionally produced and um worth every penny that it was you know that you paid to have it done and i just think um you know it was, it was, a, it was, it was good. It was a good move. <laughs> I really, yeah, I really think hearing from, you know, the person in charge, like, here's why we're doing this. And here's why it's really important. It's just, um, it touched me. So I, I just wanted you to know that I thought that it was, it was great. Um, I, I mean, I think that um, it definitely brought out like my, the way it was written, you know, was, the emotional aspect to it for me was, um, important. Like I really wanted to like, as you know, succinctly and professionally and without umming and eyeing and too much get out what I wanted to say to the community and the, uh, Taya Pandolfini who wrote it for me. Um, but you know, she and I went back and forth and we talked, we talked for a long time about the message I wanted to give. And it was really, um, it was really, I think worth it. And another thing that we did that I thought was really kind of fun with the same videographer put it together for me. Um, we did a, we, I had asked our volunteers and our planning committee to shoot short, like 30 second or so, uh, videos of like, Hey, you know, we miss, we're missing you this year. We're not at the event. We've been there. Um, I even made my husband do it because for since I've been involved in handmade arcade, he's a audio engineer and he's always sort of set up our DJ equipment for us. So I was even like, you're even making a short little, um, we'll be back. We're coming back. Like this isn't, we're not done. So, um, and that was really sweet too, to have all those different voices of the, of the people behind, you know, who support the event, um, put together there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the power of those videos is really, it can't be underestimated in any way or overstated, I guess is my point. Yeah, that's fabulous. And so I want to make sure we get to your list and um, of recommendations because you have some good ones. And I know that um, over the course of this pandemic where you've been working so hard, I mean, if, if anyone who's been hearing this can tell how hard you have been working, this is 
been a tremendous feat. Um, you have been also focusing on self care, which is so important, um, on eating well and on exercising. Um, and you and I are exactly the same age. We're both 46, which is um, great to hear. And, um, I've been focusing on those same things too. I, I don't know if it's like an age and stage or what, but, um, maybe it is. But anyway, so tell us a little bit about, about that. Um, well, it's kind of like a couple of years ago, my, my daughter blew her knee out, um, playing basketball. She played competitive basketball and we were in Cleveland and she ripped her knee to shreds. Um, it wasn't an ACL. It wasn't a meniscus. It was like a knee, her kneecap like ripped off. It was a horrific surgery. So when I was taking care of her after her surgery, she was like 110 pounds and I was having a really hard time taking care of her. And it was a moment for me where I was like, this is bad. Like I, I have my parents are getting older. I have two brothers, but I'm the daughter in an Italian family. I'm going to be taking care of them. Um, that was in July. So then that September, um, I hired a trainer. I hired a personal trainer, and he and I have been working out twice a week ever since then. It's been over almost two years now. It'll be two years in September. Um, and he is like just incredibly kind and patient, which is what I needed because I am not. I, I'm was someone who would not go into a gym. I was terrible. I would just not, it would not be something I would do. Um, so I found this like perfect person for me and, um, I just started exercising and getting stronger and eating better. And I'll tell you, like, I feel great. Like this whole, this throughout this whole pandemic, there have been days where I've been depressed and sad like anyone, but I find that, well, I'll do an hour of yoga and I feel better or I'll, I've actually transformed my basement into this crazy workout space for my, for me, um, because it, it, it feels good to, you know, feel strong and feel healthy. And, you know, when you make and when you create and like, you know, I don't make things as much as I used to very rarely, in fact, these days. Um, but I spend a lot of time as do many of us, especially now sitting at my computer and you, it affects your posture and it affects your, uh, you know, like your body, like, like sitting injuries are real. <laughs> so, um, I put a standing desk at my off in my office. Um, I don't stand at work as often as I should. Um, I, you know, I've committed to, um, eating healthier. I haven't give up, given up my nightly glass of Chardonnay. That's also important to me. Um, but I, I think it's important to not just take care of like, I think for me, taking care of my business and taking care of Handmade Arcade and taking care of my family and taking care of all of the things that are like so important to me, um, I can't do it if I don't take care of myself. And I think that that's like sort of what I learned over the years of just, you know, when you have young children and you don't have the time and you're trying to work and build a life and build a business, you don't realize how it wears and tears on you. And when I had to take care of my daughter in that way with her um, knee injury, with helping her like, you know, rewrap her leg and all of that came along with that because it was a long recovery for her. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a big light bulb moment. Um, my parents are older. I'm very close to them. And I know as they get older, I'll be the one taking care of them. And I, and I want to be strong enough and healthy enough to do, to do that. And the exercising has also helped me, um, like sort of prioritize in my brain what's in, like what's important and how like best to care for, you know, to care for him at Arcade. And I find myself more empathetic and more patient and um, 
you know, as 20 years of being a graphic designer and also running Handmade Arcade, you get a thick skin of like people giving you criticisms and telling you how should be doing things better, that I'm able to hear that now in a different way and grow from it. And just in a different way, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's been a really important um, progression for me over the past two years. Yeah, I feel like I should sit, tell everyone my trainer's name is Christopher Yetzi. He's wonderful. He has like changed my life. <laughs> he's a really great guy. And he's just like super positive. And his like, positive way of thinking has made me think about the world in a more positive light, which really is important because it is so easy to get negative right around now. And it is so easy to just see the darkness everywhere. And to see be able to feel the light is for me, incredibly important. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing that. That's that's really, really inspiring. Yeah. Um, and you've also been um, trying to do some more sketching. Yeah. And more drawing, especially during Zoom meetings. Um, and uh, I could definitely do this, especially during sort of those bigger Zoom meetings where you've got like 20 faces. <laughs> I, I, this, what I do is I draw faces. Yeah. I have a little notebook next to my, I have like a, next to my com- my computer, I have my notebook. I have my sketching pencils. Um, I have like a mason jar filled with sketch pens, like different kinds of pencils and erasers and I sketch people's faces while right. I'm in meetings. Because you've got because, this like grid of yeah. faces. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I've always, always, always loved drawing faces. When I was younger, I would draw, I would like sit and like, you know, like with my album covers and things. I would, I remember um, one time drawing like this Debbie, I remember once very clearly drawing this Debbie Harry um, album cover and showing it to my older brother and being like so proud of it. And you know, typical older brother was like, that's okay. And it like, I was like, it's great. <laughs> so I just like, I'm, I just remember I've always drawn people's faces. And so yeah, I have a little notebook filled with um, faces of the zoom calls over the past couple of months. That's awesome. Hilarious. That's so. great. There you go. That's an idea for people. You know, yeah. it's like, that's your documentation of the pandemic is all yeah. these zoom faces. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. And it's like kind of driven me to go online and like do a couple of drawing tutorials because I'm not very good at mouths. Everyone looks angry with my mouth. So I'm trying to, you know, like get like the that bottom part of the job, but like work on that better. So it's, um, and I've also done a couple tutorials on how to draw eyes better. So it's, it has pushed me to like be more creative yeah. in my, in my zoom sketching. That's great. Well, Trisha, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the craft industry thank Alliance you. podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you so much, Abby. It was wonderful. And you've been listening to the craft industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Thanks again to today's sponsor, onlinelabels.com. Visit onlinelabels.com backslash craft industry alliance podcast today for an exclusive $10 off your next purchase of $25 or more. Thank you so much, onlinelabels.com. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.